Welcome to Technology and the Mind, a podcast dedicated to exploring the intersection of psychoanalytic ideas and our experiences with consumer technology. Each episode, we will interview a seasoned psychoanalyst, philosopher, or technologist about different aspects of the conscious and unconscious effects of how we use technologies on our minds, relationships, and society. Please welcome your host, Dr. Nicole Zapian, a psychoanalytic psychotherapist, a psychoanalyst in training, and consultant in the San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to Technology in the Mind, a podcast where we interview a guest each month about the intersection between contemporary psychoanalytic concepts and our experiences with consumer technology. Today, our guest is Morgan Venable. Morgan Venable is a product development leader, engineer, paraglider pilot, unlicensed therapist, and parent with a focus on human interaction technologies and other weird complicated systems, such as consumer electronics, autonomous delivery, AR, VR, AI, ML. He even did a stint in oil field services. He's worked in rather senior roles at most of the big tech companies. Despite his best efforts, he still suffers acutely from phone information-seeking addiction, repetitive stress injuries, and seasonal allergies. He often wonders how his young children will navigate these challenges in their own lives. He suspects the solution probably involves going outdoors without phones. Lately, probably in order to subconsciously avoid going outside without his phone, he's focused on single-handedly resurrecting the world's weirdest and most legitimately ergonomic keyboard, the data hand. You can find out more at www.svalboard.com. That's spelled S-V-A-L-B-O-A-R-D.com. On weekdays, he heads product development for a small AI-driven automation startup in Seattle, and occasionally he advises a variety of other small companies. Morgan will discuss his product development work at some of the top big technology firms, his current product development activities, and some of his thoughts about the future of tech and its impact on our lives. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. You began your career at one of the premier tech product development firms in Silicon Valley, IDEO, and then worked at three of the big tech firms, Microsoft, Google, and Amazon, in interesting and creative senior and strategic product development roles. Now you're developing a really nifty keyboard that minimizes strain and is designed to prevent the injuries you have from early and ongoing keyboarding use. Tell us a little bit about your experiences and what you've seen, what you know about how tech is made and what it might be doing to us. So the core experience that I've had in the technology industry, especially in the big tech industry, has been of a large number of very talented people coming together to try and build stuff that they think is new. Our society very heavily incentivizes people, both emotionally and financially, to build new things rather than to maintain existing things. And tech is where all of the sort of capital focus in our culture today has gone. Mm -hmm. So I was attracted to that from a very young age. I always wanted to be an inventor, a builder of new things. And I still am. Not everybody is like that. I know many people who like to work in infrastructure. I know people who like to keep existing systems running, even in software. I know that it's not simply a monoculture of people who want to innovate. There are also lots of people who just want to have a steady job, people who just want to be a part of some organization that's building something that has an impact on the world. The work that I'm doing today, building this bizarre keyboard, is, I think, a response to a couple of different feelings of disempowerment in my career. So I spent 
a few years, three to four years at Microsoft, Amazon, Google, working primarily in R&D. So in very cushy and very cool jobs with very kind people with good management. I've never been yelled at at work, ever. Mm, how nice. <laughs> yeah, it's it's quite something. I'm, I'm very, very grateful for that and very uh, aware of it, especially when I talk to other people. Yeah, I was just going to say, is that something that happens in tech often? Is there a lot of yelling? No, not not generally. The culture is is quite passive and corporate, but there are high pressure jobs in tech. There are frontline production software jobs in tech where the stakes are higher moment to moment, where people are on call for a week, 24-7, and answering bug reports from the field or being paged into calls with people from six different locations around the world to fix an urgent problem for a big customer. Mm -hmm. I think I would pause to connect that back to the core challenge of big tech, which is, and especially the companies that I worked for, which is that you as the user of the product are not a customer. Most of these are ad-supported businesses. And as such, you are the product and your information is being used to target you with better marketing for other stuff you might buy. I personally actually have very little truck with that. I don't care. I prefer targeted advertising to untargeted advertising because it brings stuff that is useful to me to me. Mm -hmm. I find that there is maybe a slightly nostalgic perspective on advertising when it was just junk that came at you. Uh-huh. <laughs> the the bulk advertising of the 20th century versus the targeted advertising today. It relies to value that. I think you have to believe that the things that exist in the world that matter are accessible to you without advertising. And in many cases, and in particular, in the case of the product that I build today, that is not the case. The ability to find out about new things, especially when technology is racing so quickly and changing so many things about our lives in such positive ways, the ability to learn about those things, to discover new things, to discover new media, new art, is intermediated by advertising in some form, whether it's the technology platforms we use to consume music or literally, in my case, the direct knowledge of the existence of this weird keyboard. Mm -hmm. That is primarily gatekept, so to speak, by search engines. And if it weren't for that, you would have had to go through some bizarre network of your ergonomist and somebody else who heard about a thing, who heard about a thing, who heard about a thing, which was essentially how I got to the data hand in 2002 when I was living in Japan and, and was suffering. So I'm kind of circumspect and pragmatic about the overall business models of these companies. But I'm keenly aware of and extremely disturbed by the impact of their products on our attention, the fragmentation of our attention, and the distraction they create in the broader economy as an attractor of talent with money. So there's something interesting that you're saying. I'm busy thinking about people who are more vulnerable, who maybe can't think as clearly. They don't know what's in the secret sauce. You and I have had conversations about advertising. And when I was involved in consulting, there was the early ideas of how are we going to fund these things? You know, I think Google's first question that they posed to us, they had three employees and they asked us, we have this nifty search engine, how are we going to fund it? How are we going to make it profitable? We suggested to them serving ads. And those were those little ads in the side, they were in the sidebar at the time. And it, it looked terrible. Advertising has come a long way. And I don't think that everybody has equal capacity to sift through or resist or think through the whole shopping cart process to the extent that you do. 
And I wonder what you think about that. Like, are we preying on vulnerable people profiting from them? And then other people get to use it strategically to find more stuff faster that is more useful and ignore the rest. So basically, does it boil down to whoever has the best capacity to manage their attention is the winner in this? And whoever has the best capacity to think gets less of the unintended consequences and negative problems associated with advertising. What do you think? I'm not sure I agree. Oh, say more. I agree with you that the person who can manage their attention, the person with maybe higher executive function, greater systemic awareness of what's going on, is better positioned to extract value from these systems without necessarily bearing the brunt of the, let's say, pain. Mm-hmm. However, I don't think this is new. Uh-huh. American consumerism has always preyed on the insecurities of people. Mm-hmm. I think maybe the the best examples of that in 20th century marketing are around the establishment of, let's say, gender-based marketing, targeting women and men for their various insecurities related to the deepest parts of their personalities. Marketers still do that, yes. (laughs) Absolutely. They do it Uh today. They did it then. They will continue to do it forever. Mm -hmm. And people have always been buying stuff they don't need as long as there has been an economic surplus. I would put a pin in the following subject, which is, what are these companies and what is this technology doing to people who do not have surplus resource, to people who do not have surplus income to spend? There's a lot of nuance in that one. In my current work today, I've started to scratch the surface of some of the deeper areas of labor relation and of the actual technological work and impact on places where The economics of advertising are uninteresting to Google, are uninteresting to Amazon. So my day job today, I work at a company that does computer vision, AI automation stuff. And it's backed by humans answering questions when the AI is unsure. Those workers obviously have to be affordable for the product to be affordable. So that work is done overseas in currently South Asia and in Africa. And The presence of these jobs, the stability of them, is life-changing for a great many of the people who have them. And this work is growing very, very rapidly. Many of us are aware of the somewhat gross work that OpenAI did to train ChatGPT. Uh, I believe most of that work was centered in Kenya and Nairobi. And they were feeding people what I would describe as a concentrate of evil. A concentrate of evil. Say more. Yeah. So in order to train a large language model, you need to provide it with a lot of data. And if you want that large language model to broadly, and I'm not saying that this is a deterministic process, this is a stochastic process. If you want that large language model to not talk about certain subjects, people have to review and label and feed that data to the model as training data. Uh Uh-huh. So if you want large language models to, for example, uphold your general corporate policy of not engaging in or talking about child sexual abuse, Mm -hmm. you end up feeding a lot of that content, whether it's text or images, if you're talking about visual AI, to human labelers who curate and review it, who label it as this is inappropriate, don't train on this. Wow. But they have to make that judgment. And they have to get those images. That's right. They have to see this content or read this content. Where do they get the content? Right. (laughs) From big, scary vaults. Wow. These places exist, but they are very locked down. Thank God. Yes. Yes. There's more to it, though. So 
just the AI space has increased the nastiness of all of this. But in reality, you don't need AI and large language models to have this problem for workers in underdeveloped economies or developing economies mm-hmm. who speak English well enough to you know, interpret the nuance of stuff that's in text and so forth. You don't need AI models to have this problem. All you need is the problem of the commons. You mm-hmm. need that's the right. problem of moderation. And so the firms that I've been working with in relation to automation, which is very mechanistic, we are asking questions, is the door open? Is the train in the station? Is the robot on fire? Whatever. Those questions are incredibly benign compared to trying to keep Facebook free of child pornography or just gore. Communities like Reddit, as an example, have generally done this through user flagging. So people post, you know, unsafe for life gore stuff there and people flag it and it gets either put behind a fuzz barrier or it gets taken down, depending on whether it violates terms of service. But at scale, when you're talking about mass media and when you're talking about, let's say, international terrorism and money laundering and all of the really scary stuff out there, that is happening behind the scenes. Mm. There is absolutely no way that for example, the NSA doesn't have access to what's going over WhatsApp right now. I just don't buy it. Mm-hmm. And there's a long history of backdoors for government into these systems for good reasons, mm-hmm. right? To maintain mm-hmm. national security in all kinds of ways and to abuse in all kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. So the people in these economies who are doing this work in moderation and in training these technological models that all serve advertising, mm-hmm. they are unquestionably being harmed in aggregate. They are trading their willingness to take on trauma for money. Mm -hmm. So it's nothing short of the same thing that we've had since the beginning of time with like deforestation and the cacao plant in Mexico, you know, being it's for the benefit of people who can pay, they take on trauma, child labor, in this case, child pornography, in this case, all kinds of evils and upsets. Yeah. This is, this is a dirty job. You could send Mike Rowe to do this job in India or in the Philippines or wherever else, and you would get an interesting episode, but it would be too spicy for TV. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So what do you think about that? I mean, what about these effects? And what about knowing that the thing that maybe is useful to me in some ways, I can't see how it's made or how it's going to be made. And you've just told me my stomach is turning. What about that? How can we minimize this? Like, is there a fair trade AI, you know? There is not. There is only that which exists and that which might exist. Mm -hmm. That which exists has been paid for. The human suffering that has occurred is done. It may be ongoing and we should be careful about that, but that's what may be. What is, is that ChatGPT exists and provides in a wide variety of use cases, mundane utility. Mm -hmm. I do not believe the oh, no, artificial general intelligence is going to take over the world real soon (laughs) line. We need to hear more about your opinions on that. Why? Yeah, there are very real scenarios where those things do become problematic. And folks who are writing on those subjects today, I think, are doing important work. Okay, And you trust them. I I trust the people who are writing on it. Mm -hmm. I don't trust anyone to do the right thing because all of the incentives are wrong. Mm -hmm. Say more about that. There's a lot of money to be made in this, no? There's a tremendous amount of money to be made, for sure. 
most of the things that are about making money aren't necessarily the grossest uses. Mm. The places where it becomes problematic is where people start to trust the God in the machine. Mm -hmm. I'm really drawing primarily from the writings here of Eliezer Yudkowsky and Zvi Molshevitz, who's a former professional Magic the Gathering player, big dork in New York, <laughs> who uh, does a really wonderful and incredibly thorough rationalist writing on a few different topics. One of them has been AI stuff recently. The other was on COVID and the sort of statistical analysis of what policy was doing and what was happening socially and so forth. One of the things that he's touched on, and he has a th running theme in his newsletter, Substack, is this juxtaposition of, hey, wouldn't it be terrible if AI was used to do blah? Mm -hmm. And then the subsequent paragraph is, oh, look, somebody's using AI to do blah. Uh -huh. A simple example is, okay, we have systems that can probably optimize the allocation of energy across a grid. Should we use big machine learning models trained on data whose provenance is obviously sort of unaccessible by humans given its scale? Should we trust an ML model rather than a set of observable heuristics operated by humans to run our power grid? Can we get better results for the distribution of energy in our power grid following this path? Yes, absolutely we can. Mm -hmm. If a bad actor was somehow in control of that model, boy, we shouldn't. Yes. And there's always a few bad apples. I think it really, really calls to mind Dune mm -hmm. to me. Frank Herbert touched on this extensively. <laughs> All of the sci-fi, sci-fi, excellent novels and so on from my childhood and, and early adulthood seem to be coming true in all these different ways, you know, Blade Runner, all this kind of stuff. There's themes that are real and happening. Yeah. I mean, Neil Stevenson wrote Snow Crash in 1992, published it in 1992, I think. And that book, I can't even begin to express how true it's come. The basic concepts of a franchise-oriented private state is manifest in Amazon. People live in these very pre-packaged patterns of consumption through these large services. It's a little different, but it's not that different. And the idea of these all-seeing people, gargoyles, as he called them, with goggles on, relaying their views to the world of what's going on in the metaverse, whose name Facebook literally took from the book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That concept was made real 10 years ago. Or more now with the advent of smartphones, with the advent and the adoption, the peculiar adoption to me of live streaming of everything. We can get heavy here for a moment. We have Palestinian gunmen riding motorcycles with GoPros strapped to their foreheads on Rampage. Yes. It could not be more surreal given what we were reading by science fiction writers in the 90s. And right, right. So I'm having this experience listening to you. You're an insider. You've worked in all these big tech firms. You've thought a lot about these things. It's quite scary. What you're suggesting is racism and horror on steroids sped up and really scarily creating conflicts for people who are more marginalized or more vulnerable than others. And then here I sit in my Bay Area home ordering a few things on Amazon, what have you, getting them delivered, moving on, 
sort of thinking to myself, well, maybe I shouldn't order for Amazon, but I don't have the time Googling whatever, using chat GPT, et cetera. What could we do to make this better? I mean, I've oftentimes thought in marketing in a former career where I did some marketing research and consulting, we would notice the moment where something was too sickening and then there would be a new market for something that was healthy of the same variety. Is there some incentive that we can push to the consumer or is there some regulatory body or is there some ethical imperative that we have at this cultural moment to address some of these issues so that we don't have pain and suffering everywhere on blast forevermore and our most vulnerable people suffering even more. I think it's important up front to differentiate the many different kinds of harm we may be perpetuating. One, it's good to be aware that what we do may perpetuate harm. Two, it's good to be pragmatic and understand that the world as it is has always contained harm and that the alternatives we choose may not be on net better. So I keep those things in mind always. In the context of Amazon, for example, the primary harm done by Amazon and the logistical network it has created is on, I would say, a couple of different fronts. One, economic harm done to consumers by artificially raising prices, by preventing other sellers of goods in the world from discounting. If you want to sell on Amazon, you have to basically agree never to discount. And there's pending antitrust action. Thank you, Lena Khan. <laughs> what a person. Pending and very strong antitrust action against Amazon, against Google, against, well, not Microsoft right now, I guess. I'm not sure. Facebook in, in the EU is now going to offer a paid ad-free option. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Would I pay 10 bucks a year to use Facebook and have no ads or 10 bucks a month? I think I would, actually, mm -hmm. because it would provide much more value to me. Mm -hmm. But... To go back to Amazon, they've built this incredible logistics network. It drives up consumer prices in a way that is quite sneaky and roundabout. Mm -hmm. It also affects the structure of our economy. It consolidates the logistics aspect of work into something which has been mechanized at an incredible scale with incredible efficiency and not without human cost. The fulfillment centers that Amazon operates are places of, again, incredible efficiency incredible measurement and incredibly high turnover. They rely on worker populations who are generally on the margin, working class people who do not have much choice in what job they take. They pay reasonably. They offer, for the most part, a decent and humane working environment by any historical global standard. But they also have financial incentives, which drive people to do things that are problematic, right? We've all heard the stories about people peeing in a bottle on their shift or whatever else. Right. Most of those stories to me are on the margin. What Amazon has done by and large from what I've observed first person in these facilities is built a management structure which manages to communicate from the very highest layers of the company all the way to the very lowest layers of the company with unmatched clarity. What the purpose of the activity is and how it should be optimized for the benefit of the company and for the consumer. Whatever Amazon is doing driving up prices for me, they are also dramatically simplifying my life, especially as a parent of young children. And I, for one, I appreciate the existence of local retail. At the same time, I do not see any great nobility in the job of the local shopkeeper. Mm. It is a very inefficient way to distribute goods. 
you don't see that it creates a downtown where there's people walking around sitting in their local cafe, you know, et cetera, while they run errands, that it creates an alive space in cities? Living spaces can come from many sources. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. The way I would put it is that the existence of the local yarn shop is nice for the people who like yarn, and it is of (laughs) no value to me whatsoever. Mm Mm-hmm. And if the business is there to support it, that's great. If people want to physically browse in those places, that's great. Someday I might be the proprietor of a keyboard atelier, right? Mm -hmm. That can stand on its own. And the models by which people aggregate socially, the ways that people get together are shifting. The social norms are shifting. We no longer go to movie theaters. Why? Well, because it's frankly more pleasant to consume a movie at your own home for the most part, or it's easier and we just are forgetting about the loss. I try not to be generically nostalgic for retail, which was mostly for me as a child growing up in San Francisco, only of marginal utility. Mm -hmm. An example of something that was not only of marginal utility was Cliff's Variety Store on Castro and 18th in the middle of San Francisco. When I was a child, you could go to Cliff's and it was a hardware store. You could go in and you could buy a four by eight sheet of plywood and they would cut it to size for you and do any number of other simple custom things that required a labor force that knew how to operate some basic machinery and was very focused on the neighborhood. If you go there today, it's more of a tchotchke hardware store. Those services don't exist anymore. That's due to economic pressures. That's due to the growth of big box retail. And let's be clear, Amazon and Home Depot, I am not picking a side there. Those are both big, messy, logistical things that concentrate a lot of capability in a single economic entity and provide incredible value to consumers in terms of driving down prices and increasing access to, in this case, building materials. I just went through a home renovation when we moved into our current house. And the idea that I could have managed that process without hiring somebody else and paying a whole bunch more money to get all the materials and get it all together, the idea I could have done that without Amazon to source fixtures and Home Depot to you know, help me get plywood and all that on demand a few miles from my house, it's crazy. There's no way I could have done it the way we did it. We used to page through catalogs. That's right. Yeah. That's right. You used to have the choice of the house that came in the Sears catalog, right? (laughs) Yes, exactly. Precisely. Yeah. So I I am very thankful for that. And I do not worry personally much that Amazon is the problem with the death of American street-level retail. The problem with our society economically, the structure of our society, if we feel that jobs are not dignified... The problem is that we do not require that jobs be dignified. Hmm. And the broader problem is actually not that work is not dignified. The problem is that people are not considered worthy of dignity unless they work, which leaves them essentially dependent on work for, for example, health insurance, although we've made some strides in that. We have made almost no strides in supporting people with dignity if they choose not to work in any other way. Mm-hmm. And that. I think is probably a strategic mistake. I think that the things I have observed in my wife's native Finland around the social contract to support people who are suffering in one way or another, or people who choose not to work, that contract can be structured differently. It can be structured more respectfully, and it can lead to better outcomes across the board, which is not to say that Finland is a 
paradise. The incredible entitlements you get as a Finnish citizen also, in some roundabout way, make them quite insensitive to, I guess, what I would call diseases of despair, alcoholism as an example. Addiction in Finland is treated as primarily a moral failing. There isn't much treatment available for addiction. They will simply say, hey, you seem to have these health problems because you are alcoholic. Perhaps you should try not being alcoholic. But they will continue to care for you your whole life as you drink yourself into diabetes and blindness. I got to say, that takes some stones, man. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I find it quite surprising. It's quite Midwestern and puritanical in its way. Mm-hmm. Probably explains why all the Finns in the United States are in the Midwest. <laughs> Never <laughs> made <interesting>. there. <laughs> Aside from some pockets in San Francisco, the Bay Area, San Jose, and Seattle. So tying this back to how do we assess the types of harm that we are doing when we patronize certain kinds of businesses? And also, how do we address it? Yeah. When we support Amazon, we are supporting certainly pressures on street-level retail. You can sit where you like on that. No big deal. The alternative to people complaining about how Amazon does not provide good enough conditions for workers in its warehouses is for laws to be updated to establish what the actual rules should be that we believe are appropriate as a society for how workers should be treated in warehouses or anywhere else. This renegotiation is happening right now. It's happened primarily, I would say, in the most dramatic way during COVID in the renegotiation of the social contract around work Mm -hmm. by white collar professionals. Productivity of corporate work today is much lower than it was before COVID. I think that's because nobody cares. (laughs) And I think that's okay. I do not care a whit how much productivity Google gets out of its white-collar employees. This is the slowest strike in history. (laughs) And there are concessions being made now in the face of inflation, even to the UAW and various other unions. And I think broadly across the board, there is a recognition, even in the Republican Party, which has historically been pretty anti-labor, that workers have been getting a raw deal, poor Americans have been getting a raw deal, and things like whether or not someone is considered an employee of Uber on the basis of certain criteria may need to be reconsidered or renegotiated. That one I actually struggle with because I do believe that people should be able to engage in whatever contractually, mutually agreeable activities they would like to. I just think we need to set the floor at some place where we think there is dignity, and we need to set the same floor for dignity for people who don't work because not working does not make you morally unworthy. So you're getting into morals and ethics here. I agree with you. This is kind of where this conversation seems to often end up. And I'm wondering how you imagine mental health professionals, psychoanalysts could with our focus on the unconscious, on unintended consequences, and on dynamics between and within people, how we could maybe enter the conversation, perhaps together with ethicists, perhaps not, I don't know, but to help facilitate some sort of movement toward making unconscious processes more conscious, helping people to think through what exactly it is that they're doing and they want, helping to to have the individual and the the politician and and the companies themselves have some sort of constructive dialogue that puts pressure on something that will move the needle toward a more positive use of tech. You have a lot of insider knowledge. You seem to be comfortable with where you sit on these different points. I don't think the average user 
either knows what they're doing or what's what's happening to them. They don't have the awareness, they don't have the, the attention, or they don't know how these things are connected systemically to other systems. They haven't thought about the ethics. What do you think about the role that psychoanalysts, mental health professionals, ethicists could play here? Let me first separate two different populations. The population of users of technology, users of Google, consumers of advertising, people who subscribe to cable news, etc. That is one population. And then there's the population, as an example, in the Bay Area who are engaged with the psychoanalytic or other psych trades professions. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those two groups overlap, I would say, but Absolutely. not always. What I would say is that when I talk to people who are therapists of any kind, they will often reflect to me, probably because I am me, oh my gosh, I have this stream of people on my couch who are suffering with these problems of life direction in the face of excess and unhappiness. And those are people who may be part of that broadly consumerist and non-thinking culture, but they are also the moneyed people. So they are the employees, large part around here, of these companies. So one question is, how can we encourage those people to make more positive changes in the world or to, let's say, ride for change at Google or Amazon or Microsoft or in startups, right? That's one piece. And the other is, how can professionals in these trades help to change the environment broadly, the social environment around the creation of technology and how it's deployed? And that one is much thornier. Yes, it is. I'd love to hear what you think about it. Yeah, the, the trade-offs are are not clear wins. Whatever you change, you, you impact a lot of systems. Mm. I want to see continuous scrutiny of labor law. Mm -hmm. I want to see people who are involved in the creation of technology, when it starts doing really new things, get some extra attention from government in terms of understanding what regulation is appropriate, what regulation will be helpful versus what regulation will simply try to keep us in an era that has passed. Mm -hmm. so, what about, and this is maybe what I've been thinking about, the idea that when something new is created, instead of just doing standard usability testing or what have you, that somehow, and maybe this falls under regulation, that someone is consulted who has an understanding from a psychoanalytic perspective, from a mental health perspective, from an ethical perspective, to be able to evaluate, you know what, this is going to have these unintended consequences. For example, when Facebook first came out, I said, oh no, that is just like the high school yearbook signing scenario when it first came out. And that's, you know, that's all it had. I thought that's going to make it awful for anyone who feels insecure or feels vulnerable or what have you, there's going to be a mental health spinoff of this because it's going to go at pace, at velocity, and it's going to go the worldwide. So shame will be multiplied. That was self-evident. And I didn't sign up to be a Facebook user for that reason. I was like, I don't want to participate in this. There are things that psychoanalysts or mental health professionals would understand implicitly, I think, in reviewing some of these tools. Like, oh no, that dating app is going to cause this, this, and this. <laughs> Does anyone care? about our expertise? Or do we just want everyone to end up on our couches eventually complaining about the knock-on effects of whatever the labor law doesn't take care of and whatever the the dating app creates and whatever the you know Facebook does and whatever. And then they end up with all of those effects on our couch and they pay so for it privately. So what's the counterfactual? The counterfactual in the case of Facebook is that they did not launch Facebook because they listened to a psychoanalyst who told them this was going to cause all of these problems. 
right? Well, I'm not suggesting that they maybe do that, but I'm suggesting that maybe they mitigate some of those issues. And I agree that they that they could mitigate those things better, that that maybe they could have done a slightly better job about that. But I also, when I look at, for example, what Facebook has brought to me, mm-hmm. the most important aspect of it for me over the last five years has been that it has connected me with and kept me connected with parent groups, mm-hmm. a group that I'm still a part of in Seattle that has 5,000 members, folks who have kids from zero to grown, and has given me a ton of perspective on family life. And mm-hmm. all the dynamics. Mm-hmm. That's been stupendously valuable to me. And the fact that it is a public social space also means that it comes with all of these trappings of shame and exposure and just the general sort of high schooliness of of life mm-hmm. wrapped up in this particular forum, mm-hmm. regardless of what else I use Facebook for. So I think that people on some level have the will to harm themselves in these ways by engaging socially, by letting their ego drive them to want to present something publicly that need not be presented publicly. I certainly have been guilty of that. (laughs) So I find it very difficult to draw meaningful lines when the core functionality of the system is to let people expose this stuff. So here's a meaningful line. What about your children? Are you going to let your kids use tech? And if, if so, by when, if not under what, you know, with what guardrails? Yeah. So I think the the question of what children should be allowed to use is extremely important, but also fundamentally up to parents. For me personally, I am most concerned about the definition of the self through the eyes of others. That part I know is an innate human practice. We all look in the mirror. And I do not want my children to go into the world unprepared for what that means. And I want them to go into that world as late as is humanly possible, because I know that when I disconnect from those things, I feel better. Mm -hmm. So here's the thing. Your kids aren't yet in middle school. The minute they hit sixth grade, the social pressure in most communities, with the exception of the ultra-rich private school communities, which actually ban cell phones in middle school oftentimes, um, which I think is fascinating, in most sixth grades now, Every child, there's tremendous social pressure to belong anyway in sixth grade. That's a big phenomenon in sixth grade uh, development. And there's tremendous social pressure to get a cell phone. If you don't get a cell phone for your child, your child is left out of all of the group texts, the birthday parties, all of the other things, which is horrifying. And if you do get a cell phone for your child, then they do use it to concern themselves with who am I vis-a-vis the social, who am I based on all of this feedback. And you may think that you're going to block, you're probably a very sophisticated user, so maybe you're better than others, but most parents think they're going to, you know, confiscate the cell phone at night, put it away or block the internet for some period of time or what have you. Kids usually find a way around that, even at sixth grade. What do you imagine is going to happen? I don't think most sixth graders are prepared for that. And I do think most of them have cell phones. Some even have them at kindergarten. Once the internet is there, it's over. Let's be clear. I, I was that sixth grader, but I was a sixth grader when the internet barely existed. And I was fortunate that the shape of the internet, such as it was when I was in sixth grade, was primarily bulletin board services. Mm-hmm. So the communities were scoped. They were of a certain scale. They couldn't fester in the same way. And it was slow. You had to hear that dial-up ping It thing, was slow. Right? And mm-hmm. kids were not there, by and large. Right. It was mostly a, a grown-up space. So... Even in that context, right, and with the emergence of the internet over the course of my adolescence, which was quite synchronous 
I certainly had the will and the ability to explore everything that was out there. There just wasn't as much. Do you think any of that harmed you? No, I do not. I do not. You know, I had exposure to basically people being jackasses on the internet periodically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, it connected me to people. It let me connect with people who were like me when I felt very isolated as an adolescent, which is a very common feeling in adolescence. And that was incredibly valuable. The disruptive effects on attention existed even then, right? And they exist today in my own information-seeking behaviors at my computer. So those problems have always been there, but the phone and the physical presence of it with us is the new, quote-unquote, new part and the most addictive. I think the part that's different, though, is if you're a sixth grader now and you start with an iPhone, it's kind of on fire. You don't have, you, I mean, I'm a little older than you. I remember the analog world. Then there's this place where it was dial up and my cell phone, you needed to like pull out an antenna and you could only, you know, you had a Blackberry or whatever. It was so slow that the addiction quality sort of snuck up on you. It wasn't, it wasn't that interesting. You would put it down after a certain point to really see images. You had to go home, deal with your, you know, et cetera. So it, it wasn't as portable. There's a lot of things that kids now are able to do and their brains aren't developed. And I think that's the point that I make oftentimes like, oh, we need to think about regulation and brain development to protect what we maybe don't know might be happening to different aspects of child development as a result. I don't have good answers for this. The most interesting examples I have in my life are people who grew up who are, let's say, 10 years my junior now, maybe 13 years my junior who were my employees, as an example, at Amazon, who have grown up entirely digitally, entirely with the internet available to them. Porn on the internet has been a normal feature of daily life for young people for their entire lives, as far as they were concerned. And they seem fine. <laughs> you and I have different perspectives on that because of what they share with me. Yeah, I'm in a I mean, different they, role. Yeah. I think that they seem as as messed up as anybody else has been. Mm. I'm thinking, though, one of young men, not of young women specifically. Young men with erectile dysfunction at 18 is really weird, I have to say. I have say. not run into that. so That comes to me very often. And I, <laughs> yeah. I find that that's not so fine. That's not so fine at all. Fair. Yeah. Fair. And I don't think we've ever really seen that in to the extent that we have now. We haven't seen a generation at 30 yet that had this stuff as small children. Those kids with cell phones in kindergarten, they are not adults yet. No, they aren't. They, they will aren't. be soon. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the cutoff is, right? Right. So there's there's probably places where one should look epidemiologically to understand. And there's certainly plenty of early evidence, right, that all of the stuff that goes on with social media is really harmful to us. But ultimately, this is going to be the in terms of mental health, a battle between the people who have executive function and understanding of systems and a management of their own attention, who can make those choices. Is it possible for a child to grow up today in these circumstances and end up like that? To end up able to make their own choices? To end up with that executive function? I don't honestly know. There's some, right? I read somewhere, I don't know who who wrote it, that the criteria, the cutoff for an ADHD diagnosis in the 1960s, we now all meet the criteria, that it's culturally and historically bound, and that we've kind of moved the needle on what we consider not paying attention. We also have computer-generated you know, ways of testing for ADHD and so on, but which is funny in and of itself. But 
if anybody interviewed any of us in the 1960s, they would diagnose us all, which is fascinating. Yeah. And I think their cultural frame would be dumb. <laughs> I guess that's touche. Fair point. There were a lot Fair of point. there were a lot of things pathologized in the 1960s. Good point. Good point. I don't agree. meet my bar. Yeah. And I that's consider right. deeply, deeply inhumane and anti-freedom. Yes, you're right. You're right. There were also social norms around like cultural cohesion and and like fitting in in positive ways that have gone by the wayside. <laughs> Absolutely. Now it's come as you are, do whatever you like, right? Yeah. I want to get back to, you know, your current project, Svalbard. Tell us a little bit about that because it really deals with the impact of tech on the body. And I yeah. think that's super interesting. Oh man, it's so literal. I started using keyboards when I was very small. We had an IBM PC in the house from the time I was about three or four years old and was typing a lot for communication and for game stuff when I was probably from the age of about 10, thereabouts, and used a crappy Microsoft ergonomic keyboard for 10, 15 years, maybe 10 years. And when I was working in Japan, I was carrying my keyboard back and forth to work. And I still had, I had, had RSI issues at the time. They were already not good. But that keyboard got wet in a typhoon as I was riding my bike to work, and I needed something to replace it. And I went looking for the craziest stuff I could find. And I found this thing called the data hand, which positions the keys right around the tips of the fingers to reduce the amount of movement and provides very, very low actuation forces to reduce the ergometric work done during typing. And it completely fixed my RSI. I took a chance on a $900 keyboard on the basis of 100 pages of testimonials, one of which was from my old friend and college classmate, Dave Zito, who I wrote to and was like, hey, dude, did you ever use this keyboard? He was like, oh, yeah, that was awesome. I remember that thing. And I was like, okay, sold. So <laughs> this thing fixed my arms. If I type on a flat keyboard for you know, a couple of days, I am legitimately crippled for a couple of weeks. So I just sort of want to say, like, first of all, repetitive stress injury from keyboarding Wow, like okay, this is these things are dangerous. And second of all, what an interesting use of tech and manufacturing and creativity to produce something that is actually able to help us with this. And so I just I've seen the keyboard, it's really nifty, it's really different looking than a current keyboard and it's amazing. It's amazing. It's truly truly creative. I think this is kind of at the core of why I don't really like to align myself with the raw anti-technologist crowd. The world has always been very unaccommodating for people with injuries, right? The ADA is a very important piece of legislation. People who have challenges with physical access to things, whether it's RSI or missing a limb or whatever, they can find such accommodation today that was never possible before. My uncle died of ALS 10, 15 years ago, mm, and I'm I sorry. watched him go through every stage of that process of losing first the ability to speak and then the ability to use his hands and so on. And in seeing all of the adaptive stuff that he worked with on his journey, I saw such grace in technology. And the technologies that are ascendant today when it comes to removing the drudgery of composing stupid prose or building prostheses that adapt to an individual's specific anatomy when you think about additive manufacturing, those things have tremendous power for people to cross barriers that have historically been the source of their oppression. Mm -hmm. The inability to access translation is something that prevents people from accessing markets. The work that has happened in 
at, for example, in Google research on translation, machine translation is life changing across the world. The fact that Americans only use it when they go to Italy and want to order some gelato is frankly <laughs> irrelevant. Nobody yeah. I worked with at Google cared about that at all. What they were interested in was the ability for people who live in broadly multilingual communities where there's a lot of fragmentation of markets and things like that, for those people to be able to get help when they need it from government services, from people around them, and so forth. So I view the work that I'm doing with this weird keyboard as building prostheses for people who need to type for their living. Including yourself. Including myself. And just people who want the most amazingly wild and adapted thing they could possibly have. And I view it very much in the same vein as those other kinds of assistive technology with relation to language or visual understanding, right? Imagine being a blind person today and being able to get a reasonable kind of scene summary of an image that's on a screen without a person having had to write it for you. Yeah, yeah. It's, amazing. it's not perfect, but it's amazing. So we do have to remember that some of these technologies can be used for good, despite the fact that there are people in Nairobi or wherever coding child porn and people with attention deficit issues or executive function problems struggling. There are people in these places classifying content. Yes. There are absolutely positives that come from this stuff. And I, I tend to believe, I want to believe that the impact we can have on the world when we engage with it earnestly can be positive. There are systemic changes that are afoot that we can't necessarily fix, that the engagement of a given discipline in the development process of will not necessarily change because the economic incentives are large and because the utility incentives to groups other than the people those people are concerned about are too large. Yes, yes. So to me, what I like to see as a person working in the technology industry, the bar that I hold for myself is that I will not work with people whose ethics I do not trust. I will not work with people who are not mindful of the harm they may cause to other people. Are you, because of your capacity, your intelligence, your ranking in these different firms, are you perhaps more privileged than others oh my in, God, in your ability so to put that, yeah, to put that stake in the ground? The, I mean, this is this is the other side of the coin. So I work at a company that sends imagery to people who annotate it. Mm -hmm. The imagery we send is mostly boring, but people have concerns about how that system might be used. Could you use this system to identify whether a person was present in a space and then blow up a bomb? Yes. Yes. Yes, you could. You could do that a lot of ways. You could do that through much simpler ways. It would be silly to use our service to do that. But yes, you could do that. That immediately begets the question, why is it our company policy not to work on weapon systems or targeting systems? And the answer is because we are privileged. I have friends and colleagues from Israel who worked on Iron Dome. If that's not a weapons and targeting system, I don't know what is. At the same time, I am thankful that they did that work. It is dirty work in some cases. And in some cases, it is necessary, and there is nuance, and it is hard. But the reason that this effete group of 20 people in Seattle can decide not to work on those systems is precisely that other people have worked on those systems in great detail for a very long time. Well, we have gone far and wide, and I have a lot to think about. Is there anything else you'd like to add about the projects you're working on, about tech in general, about the future for our listeners? I think the most important part for me is to encourage people who work in the technology sector, who live in this incredible abundance, both inside these giant companies and outside these giant companies, to be mindful of what your heart actually wants. 
there is more money than you need out there. Chances are, if you work in tech, you can always access more of that later if you need it. But making a conscious decision to dissociate yourself from work that you find tiresome or uninteresting or potentially unethical pays dividends in the form of happiness. I've done it a few times. I've quit a few tech jobs, never with a feeling of saltiness, just with a feeling, this isn't right for me right now. There, I can get more out of my life than going to this office to sit and talk about this stuff, even though I really like these people and I like the social validation. But having walked away a few times from those roles, pretty happy to be where I am right now, building things that directly bring people joy. And I think that actually Zvimovshevitz wrote a piece on this a while ago about how we should distribute all of this surplus wealth that comes from AI taking all our jobs. And he was like, well, maybe in China, what they do is they print money to pay people to like make the streets beautiful, to trim the trees and all of these other things, because labor is dignifying in some way in many societies. And perhaps the labor that we should be considering important given the rise of social media and all of the harms that we see in our society in terms of mental health crises. Perhaps we should be funding people to just go and be therapists and do therapy for free for people. Mm -hmm. Why not? Right. <laughs> That's an interesting um, way to look at it, certainly. And I would argue maybe even psychoanalysis, so depth therapy. If sure. People yeah. Want I'm, it. I'm saying yeah, the, broadly the psych understood. trades generally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But that sounds like a, an interesting vision, another yeah, science fiction uh, futuristic <laughs> it, that may not be so ungrounded at all. I hope not. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's very positive. We've been speaking with Morgan Venable. You can find him at www.svalboard.com. Thank you so much for sharing your ideas with us. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. And thank you for listening to Technology in the Mind. Next, we'll be talking with Dr. Alexander Stein with Dolis Advisors, a psychodynamically informed consultancy to people at the top of organizations on issues involving leadership, culture, ethical governance, misconduct risks, and other institutional matters with complex psychological underpinnings. Please join us at Technology in the Mind on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Technology in the Mind was funded in part by a grant provided by the American Psychoanalytic Foundation on behalf of the American Psychoanalytic Association. Thank you for listening to this episode of Technology in the Mind. If you would like to learn more about psychoanalysis and technology, please visit the Center for Psychoanalysis and Technology at www.centerforpsychoanalysisandtech.com. For additional episodes of Technology in the Mind, you can find us wherever you find your podcasts.